Well, welcome back to our second last bonus episode as we explore the topic of eschatology and the end times. Well, as I said, this is our second last bonus episode. Our next episode, we're going to have Naomi DeVries, our children's pastor, join us. So kids or those with kids, get excited for that one. I'm really looking forward to that. But today's episode is a great episode as well. We've got two wonderful guests with us this morning. The first one is less exciting. Uh, pastor James Galea, welcome. Thank you for that great intro. But the far more interesting guest, Lisa, welcome. Thank you very much. Lisa is a clinical psychologist uh, for over 25 years. She is at the moment um, eight years into her research on the psychology of hope mixed with theology and philosophy. And Lisa is also a wonderful member of our church family. So who better to have on today's episode? Because today we're thinking about hope and we're thinking about heaven. Now we've had heaps of questions get sent through from church members, including the question everyone wants an answer to, which is, will my pet go to heaven? So stay tuned for that one. But first I want to ask you both, when you were a child and you thought about heaven, what did you picture heaven would be like? I had a strong image when I was young that heaven would be like church camp, that everyone <laughs> would have their rooms and there would be this long table in the middle and it was full of bowls with red frogs. <laughs> and for me, that was really exciting. I just thought an endless supply of red frogs and everyone's on church camp. Uh, I mean, I'm an extrovert, so that is definitely heaven for me, lots of people, but that was the image. For other people, that might be hell. Very much so, but for me, I was really excited by that. Eternity of church camp with red frogs. <laughs> Mine, um, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I can't think that I even had a thought of heaven as a child. And I didn't really start thinking about life after death until my dad died when I was 15. And then I totally freaked my mum out because I said I wanted to explore every world religion and see what on earth was happening after wow. people died. And we had a commune of Hare Krishnas next door. So she had images of me joining the Hare Krishnas. <laughs> but then at 18 um, at university, I became a Christian. I decided Jesus actually had the best answer to what happens after death. I think a lot of people, this idea of heaven and hope would just go, well, this, it just sounds like it's going to be boring. Why even think about this? What do you think about that? Is heaven going to be boring? Randy Alcorn, who wrote a book called Heaven, which has been profoundly helpful for me, and I highly recommend it as a book, he said a great quote, which was, Satan doesn't need to convince us that heaven doesn't exist. He need only convince us that heaven is a boring, unearthly place. And I think he's got a lot of us in that space, Satan, in terms of we think heaven is boring. But when you look at it, heaven can't be boring because God's not boring. Mm. I mean, you see, when you have a good meal and your eyes just pop with the taste of that good food, or you see a sunrise, or you're swimming and I mean, snorkeling the other day and just seeing the fish down at Shelley Beach, those moments are like, wow, and... New heavens and new earth are going to be like this world, but so much more better, uh, so much more good. And those moments of wowness are just going to be the norm. In Psalm 16, it says, you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. So that's sort of picture of heaven is going to be an eternal pleasures with being filled again and again with utter joy and utter excitement and those wow moments. Mm. So it can't be boring. I remember the first time that I 
realised that heaven was actually going to be, have some continuity and all the exciting and wonderful things that we have here, but even better. Because when I first become a Christian, I definitely had this idea of heaven being a place of disembodied souls sort of floating off. Part of my understanding of that was that the only thing we could do now that had any grounds for eternity was just share the gospel with people, just evangelism. And in the reality of busy life, often that wasn't possible. And I started to think, my goodness, does this mean my life has no eternal value if the only thing that I can do is to sort of see souls in heaven? And then reading, it was a Tom Wright book called Surprised by Hope, that no, there's this continuity of creation now, like James was saying, all the wonderful and the good things now, but um, on steroids in a way, (laughs) and thinking that means not only will it not be boring, but that the things that we do now matter into eternity. Mm. So tell us a bit about your research. Help us understand, in general culture, what are some of the common worldviews and ideas people have about hope? Yep, that's a good question. So In the world of psychology, which is my world of work in academia, hope is defined as two things. So if you have been successful at achieving your goals in the past and you can think of lots of pathways to achieve your goals in the future, that's it. That's what hope is. (laughs) Which um, It's not a very high bar. It's not a high bar. It's utterly individualistic. You can't hope in your surgeon, let alone in God. It's just about you. And I think it confuses hopes and goals because hopes are to a degree uncertain and bigger and more noble and more connecting with deeply meaningful things. But certainly that's how in all psychological and educational research in the Western world, that's how hope is defined. There's an American uh, literary critic called Andrew Del Banco, and he wrote a book on hope and he tracked how American society, and I think Australia would be similar, has used the word hope in literature and from the founding of the States all the way through to now. And his book only has three chapters, God, the nation, and self. And he says that we've watched this changed down the centuries where people as a societies, we used to put hope in God, then it became the nation and human progress. And he says now it's shrunk to the vanishing point of the self alone, hope in self. And what does that do to a person if that's their only concept of hope, hope in self? Yes, it's very, it's very shrunken, isn't it? It means you can't really think big picture about hope. But the glimmer of of hope in that is in my research in 2020, I asked people, what do you put your trust in for the future of humanity? Mm. Is it science? Is it government? Is it social movements? Is it yourself? And um, science was the most common answer. But really interestingly, there were only two answers that correlated with people actually feeling hopeful. And they were the belief that everything happens for a reason and the belief that good will conquer evil. So even though, so we sit in this strange paradox, even though the definition of hope is around the self and goals focused, a lot of people have this intuition that there's something bigger going on, that things are going to ultimately make sense. You know, people say all the time, oh, all good, all good. <laughs> and, um, or yes, it's going to happen for a reason, certainly in my clinical experience. And whether that's the 
wonderful resonances of a Christian worldview that still exist in our society that people just can't let go of. There is just this sense of there must be more. Or if it's that God has placed eternity in the human heart and it's still there. So although on the one hand it's quite shrunken, I think there's enough echoes and resonances that it makes sense when we start to talk about God to people. Did you notice a difference between different generations in terms of these ideas of hope? Yes, and it's very sobering in terms of younger people in our society. So I asked people, realistically, what is your best hope for the future of humanity? And under 25s overwhelmingly said, my best hope is just that it doesn't get worse. Wow. Over 45s said, oh no, it's all going to be fine. Humanity will flourish for many, many generations. And it was a really huge difference there. And of course, the problem with having a hope that just says it won't get any worse is it actually doesn't give you any future to move backwards from. You don't have a glimpse of where you want to go or what it is going to be like that you can make happen now. Um, Jürgen Moltzmann is an amazing theologian who wrote a book called A Theology of Hope. He says the worst utopia of all is the utopia of the status quo because you can't, there's actually nothing to look forward to Mm. (laughs) if it's just that it won't get worse. So I think this is an awesome opportunity as churches to speak into, there's this vacuum, this void with young people Mm. who don't have a vision of where humanity can go. So let's speak into that and say we actually have an answer. So you're a psychologist. Tell us about how hope impacts someone's well-being. So hope has, it correlates with pretty much every well-being measure known to man, <laughs> satisfaction with life, meaning in life, people who are hopeful are less depressed, less anxious, less stressed. In practice, to be hopeful requires three things. You need a sense of future possibilities. And unfortunately, when we're stressed and anxious, that shuts down the part of our brain that can think of good future possibilities, which is why like we all know that hope is going to be the opposite of depression, but it actually is the opposite of being stressed and anxious. So we have to manage that anxiety to feel hopeful. And and it's a worry, I think, as a society, we're almost becoming stressed and anxious and losing our capacity to see these possibilities, which is reflected in that research on young people. But the second thing we need to feel hopeful is to have a sense of agency that we can act to participate in bringing about what we hope for. And obviously some some of our hopes as believers only God can do, but our prayers are, are our action in that. And some we have to do communally as a church to bring about what we hope for, and some we can do individually. But we always have to wait. We always have to be There's a lot of talk in the scriptures that links hope with perseverance and endurance and patience. So to be able to hope, we also have to be able to cope. This is one of my little lingos. Coping is hoping and hoping is coping (laughs) because we often have to, we're poised to do what we can to bring it about, but we may not be able to right now. And we also need glimpses of what we hope for. And that's really important to have in our mind's eye where we'd like to land, where, what we're actually hoping for, because that generates in our, in our brain, in our emotional circuitry in our brain, when we imagine the thing that we hope for in the future, it actually, we get the same emotional experience as if it's actually happening. 
to think about what we're hoping for in the future is about twice as strong in terms of emotional experience as remembering something that's happened in the past. So those little glimpses, you don't need the whole picture, just the little glimpse, you know, the, you're imagining the holiday, just the glimpse of lying in the warm sand. You don't need the whole itinerary, but that's really powerful to help us hope. This is a question that's been sent in by someone from our church. Two questions from two different people, but they're both similar. First one is, will we go to heaven or will heaven come to us? It's a core belief of many that we go to heaven. However, the Bible never actually says that, does it? Do you think our go to heaven language can be unhelpful? Mm. The second question, very similar question. On Sunday, we spoke about heaven as Eden restored and a real place and that this new earth will still be in earth. So when we die, do we actually go to heaven or do we find ourselves back on a restored earth? There's a lot there. So heaven is where God is, earth is where we are, simply put. I always grew up understanding in terms of we'd go up to heaven and sort of go be with God. And that freaked me out as a kid because I was scared of heights and the idea of me going up, I was like, what am I going to hold on to? So when I heard and came to understand what Revelation 21 saying, where it's not that we go up to heaven, that heaven comes down to us, that God dwells among his people, as it says there. That was profoundly liberating, not only because of my fear of heights, but also to the fact that God is wanting to come be with us. Like I was always amazed at the fact that Jesus came to dwell with us in Christ. Uh, took on flesh. That was amazing at Christmas. But that's going to be the normal state of God. He's going to be, as it were, the incarnate, so to speak, live with us, dwell with us in the new heavens and new earth. One of the things that this person writing this question is asking about is whether the new heavens and new earth will be something totally new, something totally fresh, or whether it will be, whether there'll be some sense of continuity this earth being restored. Lisa, I know you were mentioning to me before about a moment in your life where you had a real crisis in faith about this and whether everything was actually one day just going to be destroyed. And when you discovered this idea that there would be some sense of continuity, it brought you such great hope. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's no accident that I'm doing this thesis on the psychology of hope because it's it's been something I've been so passionate about. Mm. And I love the idea that the future, including all these continuities, that, that when we think about what it's going to be like in the new creation. It'll be a place of justice and creativity and beauty and love and all those good things. And there's a sense in which as believers now, we can pull those things backwards from the future into the present. You know, in the Lord's Prayer, where it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like this is our call as Christians that we we can get to enact just the glimpses. Obviously, we can't do it fully because that's going to be the joy of the new creation, the full experience, but that we do get to live out and be those glimpses. There's a really interesting researcher called Roy Baumeister, and he talks about how important it is to have a balance of time perspectives in our heads. Now, he's not a Christian, but it really applies as Christians. So he says, if all we do is focus on the present, and there's been a big push in psychology for mindfulness, like always in the present, always in the present, people who do that are happier, but they actually find life less meaningful than people who spend a roughly even amount of time in the past, 
the present and the future. And I think as believers, we've got to sort of take this on board. We absolutely need to remember it's Jesus' death and resurrection that is the guarantee of our future hope, that past stuff really matters. And we have to be engaged in the present and pulling that future backwards into the present. But we need to be contemplating, which is why this series on eschatology is so fantastic, Where is God taking us? What does the end of the story look like so that we can participate in our chapter, that we find ourselves in this big story, heading in the right direction, heading towards the end? So when we do something that brings about justice or that is beautiful or creative, there is this continuity into the new creation. And I think a great thing in terms of spiritual habits is spending more time as a Christian, uh, not only in prayer, in hearing and remembering what God said in his word, but also yearning for the future of, of dreaming about mm, it and absolutely. pondering about it and getting excited about that new creation, that new place, that new home that you're going to be with Christ, mm. making that part of our habits. Well, one of the things I think a lot of people were questioning and grappling with as a result of Sunday's sermon was this idea that in heaven there'll be no marriage, perhaps maybe even no sex. And for many people, they're thinking, well, that doesn't sound like a place I want to be. What would you say to people grappling with that? When it comes to, well, let me break it down in terms of with marriage, it's not that we will, or so I'm married, it's not that I will forget my wife, Charlie, when I get into the new heaven and new earth. There's a continuity of memories and relationships and you know use Jesus example where he sees Mary in the garden and he recognizes her and he doesn't forget her there's a remembering of the past so my relationship with my wife changes to where we're we're single but it's not true to say that there's no marriage in heaven because there is a marriage in heaven between us and Jesus he's the groom we're the bride and so every marriage has a a greater purpose than just companionship than just love, than just having children. The greatest purpose of marriage is to point to the marriage that's coming. And so when you experience that or see that, it's a taste of what everyone will have when we meet Christ. And we will feel complete, all our desires met. We will feel perfectly loved and safe. And and so if you experience that, even a little bit here, it's a taste of what's to come. Sex is a bit different. C.S. Lewis is helpful here where he says, you think about chocolate. Chocolate is one of those things you taste it. And it's like, whoa, that's really good. But he says in terms of a passionate lovers, right, who are engrossed in sex, they don't stop and say, actually, let's stop and have chocolate. That's so much better. No, no, no. They're engaging in something that's so much better uh, in their minds. And it's not that chocolate is bad, but what they're doing is so much better, C.S. Lewis says. And when we come to heaven, new heavens, new earth, we can't imagine what that bliss will be like. Because we think, oh, well, this is the best thing we can experience on earth. But there is so much more better to come. Uh, and it's not that the thing was bad, not that sex was bad, not that chocolate was bad, but the experience, the, the wowness, the, that awe and bliss will be so much more better, uh, greater and experienced in the new heavens, new earth. One person was saying, as we've preached through this series, my life is so good here. You know, I've got it made, uh, living on the lower North Shore, everything's just going great. I find it really hard to think about heaven and long for it. Any tips for how we can actually long for this hope? Well, that's that's a nice place to be, though, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think there's a human being alive, though, that doesn't 
crash into the problems of fallenness in this world. Eventually, <laughs> there's going to be relationships which are difficult. There's going to be health issues. You know, there's going to be problems. And it's it's at that time, I guess, I, hope comes into its own when you are struggling. That's true. It's not only when you're struggling. I really believe we will hope in heaven because time and God's promises will keep unfolding and we can go from good to more good or even better. <laughs> but this side of the new creation in, in the fallen world, eventually we will long for something better. Yeah, I think it's the misconception that a lot of people have is, oh, you really yearn for heaven if you're poor or suffering or persecuted or disabled. And, you know, it's not all that appealing if things are going well now. And Like it's a crutch for the weak, that kind yeah, of Yeah, or, or the need and that kind of thing. No, 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 heaven is for all of God's people, no matter if you've experienced a good life or bad life. And I think the solution is not to go find the bad things so you appreciate heaven also more. I think it's find the good things and telling yourself, actually, this is going to be a taste of heaven. Prepare yourself, rejoice in how much better it's going to be in the new creation. So, for example, for, like I remember growing up and we go to Wet and Wild up on the Gold Coast as a day. And at the end of the day, I remember my dad saying, kids, this is going to be a taste of heaven. This is, this is what heaven's going to be like. <laughs> I often think of this and I paddle an ocean ski. So it's like a six and a half meter long skinny kayak that we take out on waves. And it's bliss. It's just amazing out there. But I often think about that scripture about how the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the water covers the sea. And I think, oh, in the new creation, I can't get, like, what does that even mean <laughs> as the waters cover the sea? But it's going to be just amazing because it'll be like being enveloped in God, this water will envelop me in the same way that God will envelop yeah. me. So even though it's wonderful, it will be even more wonderful. It is going to be wonderful. But this person's written in, how can I enjoy it? How can I enjoy heaven when I will know that people I love have ended up in hell? Yeah. It's those memories that we look back on that bring us to tears, where it's either things that have been done to us, or thinking that if I can remember things in heaven, remember the past, and I think we do remember the past, I mean Jesus had in his resurrected body still the holes where the nails went, will I be brought to tears in thinking that that loved one who I loved but didn't love Jesus is not here? John Chapman, who is an evangelist in Sydney who's now passed away, his dad went to his grave cursing God and very much adamant about that. And he said this, he said, God would do the right thing by his dad. And one day I will rejoice that the right thing has been done. And so it's when we get to heaven, it's not that we will forget or change, but we will see and have a fuller sense of God's goodness, his plan, his justice. And that in one ways will redeem the memories and he will wipe away every tear so that we will not be sad and cannot be sad in heaven, even though those who we love are not there. Well, our last question is about pets. It's the one everyone wants the answer to. In some senses, it's a bit of a fun question, but it's also deeply serious for so many people. Um, there were more pets that entered households than babies throughout the last few years of COVID. I read that in the paper. And so this is an emotional question. So what do you think? I mean, you both have pets. Mm. 
Yep, I have a 58-kilogram Rhodesian Ridgeback, who I'm really hoping is going to be there. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got a five-kilo Cavalier King Charles, <laughs> so different ends of the dog spectrum. I'm more and more convinced that pets will be in heaven because I think sometimes it's seen as a joke question, but we get confused because we think pets are, uh, well, Jesus didn't die for pets, but of course he didn't die for pets because they're A, not made in the image of God, and B, have no sin that needs atoning for. And God's heart is for animals. I'm amazed that, you know, he took those animals onto the ark with Noah. He says at the end of, what is it, Jonah, you know, his great concern for the city and also for the animals. And Jesus said, I am making all things new. So I presume that all presumes pets. And at the end of the day, if you know God's character, who's a good God who loves to give good gifts, you're in heaven saying, you know, God, I'd love to see Billy, my dog, again. Can you resurrect? I can't see God saying, nah, sorry, I didn't send my son to die for Billy. You know, I can't see that. That's not part of God's character. He's a good God who loves to give good gifts. So I think pets will be in heaven based on the character of God and, and what he's revealed. But a bigger question for most people, I think your pets will be in there, but will you be in heaven to meet your pet? That is the question, and that's the question that the Bible's really on about why Jesus came, is because the default for humans is not heaven, it is hell, and so that's why we need the Lord Jesus. Lisa? He's hoping. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Wouldn't be heaven without my Archibald. <laughs> Throughout these bonus episodes, have been saying all theology should lead us to praise and enjoy God. So Kurt is going to play a verse and a chorus of Living Hope. It's a song we sing at church as we fix our eyes on the hope we have. Then came the morning that sealed the promise Your buried body began to breathe And out of the silence the roaring lion declared the grave no claim on me Oh Jesus yours is the victory Oh hallelujah Praise the one who set me free Hallelujah Death has lost his grip on me you have broken every chain There's salvation in your name Jesus Christ, my living hope Well, thank you, James. Thank you, Lisa, for joining us. We'll be back with our final bonus episode. Join us next time.